Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Do you know who the Oath Keepers are? Uh, yes. Aren't they part of the white premises group? I got a bachelor's in politics. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, tell me. Who, who are they? I feel like it rings a bell, but... Aren't they the one that, uh broke in on January 6th. I remember reading news accounts after that from various news sources, right and left, all of them saying that they played a significant role in the violent insurrection at the Capitol. And I believe recently uh, some of their leadership was sentenced to imprisonment, and uh, I believe rightly so. I know that there's a court case and a lot of them are being put into jail, and I know a lot of them are getting time. Oh, wow. That's wild. I did not know that. I, I didn't recognize the name when I first heard it, but I, I am aware of the January 6th stuff in general. Crazy that we live in a day where you can storm the Capitol, though. Very sad. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. On May 25th, Stuart Rhodes, who is the founder of the militia group The Oath Keepers, was sentenced to 18 years in federal prison for helping to organize a plot to violently interrupt the transfer of presidential power. Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy, and his sentence is the longest handed out thus far to just over 500 people convicted of crimes associated with the insurrection on January 6th, 2021. A number of his fellow Oath Keepers have also received sentences in recent days, and it's been an interesting time for one of my colleagues here at WNYC. For the past three years, Micah Lowinger has been reporting on the militia movement for the show On the Media. And in the course of that reporting, he recorded audio that has become an important part of the national story about what happened on January 6th and helped to answer questions about who should be held accountable for it. Federal prosecutors actually used Micah's reporting to help build their case. But Micah, he does not rejoice in this seemingly triumphant fact. And I wanted to hear more about why. Hey, Micah. Hey, Kai. Okay, so on January 6th, during the insurrection itself, you were recording the communications of the Oath Creepers. The recordings you made that day would become a very big deal. Um, uh, They'd become part of the government's case. And we will get to all of that and all of your feelings about it. But I want to back up to the time before January 6th, actually. How'd you start following the militia movement in the first place? Like, as a reporter, what got you going? So I'd learned about an app called Zello. It's like a walkie-talkie app similar to WhatsApp. 
um, or even Facebook, where you can find channels or groups where people are talking about different subjects. And uh, as a radio journalist, I'm always interested in in sound and you know what audio we can use to um, illustrate a internet phenomenon or political movement. And when I was on this app, I started to notice that um, tons of the groups had these far-right symbols and names that I didn't really understand. And I, at the time, I thought they were gun groups. That was the term I used. And as I started listening to these channels, I started to realize, like, oh, these are militia channels, and they're recruiting new members. Wow. And th- they had these violent fantasies about facing off with Antifa and Black Lives Matter in the street. And just I had this front row seat to something that uh, should have been harder to find. Um, and that's kind of how I became interested in the militia movement. What was it about Zello in the first place? Why were you even looking at Zello? I was interested in Zello because um, I was interested in uh, volunteer storm relief. Something that had been covered a lot in the press was that when a hurricane was approaching um, you know, the continental United States, there would be these groups that would show up on Zello and they would, it was like this incredible symphony of organizing uh, with people with boats in Florida uh, uh, or Texas or Louisiana um, and dispatchers and, you know, armchair meteorologists who would study the storm and and end up actually saving people's lives. Like they were like kind of mm-hmm. doing FEMA's job, um, going out to f- saving people off of flooded rooftops. And you could just listen on Zello to this, you know, in some ways, wonderful use of the internet and and technology. And that's what I was interested in at first. And then as some I studied these groups, organizing, like organizing, positive to, like, organizing, do something to yes. help the world. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, a lot of the people who are doing this have like militia insignias in their names Mm -hmm. and and then that's when i realized like oh like this is a ecosystem for for all kinds of things but the far right has found a home here and what was it about zello for them like do you like why were they drawn to that platform there is a long history of uh, the use of radio um, among far-right groups. And keep in mind that a lot of militia members are former and current police and military. Mm-hmm. Um, and they identified a lot with this kind of, you know, sometimes we hear the term LARP, live-action role-play. You listen <laughs> to one of these groups and you say, oh, it's just pretend. They're pretending to be in the military. And they're using kind of the pretense of a militia to kind of act out these fantasies of having a higher purpose within your community or within your country. Um, And so they would use all this kind of military lingo. uh, And uh, voice chat is just extremely efficient for making plans and for interviewing new people and for having group discussions. Uh, You know, especially um, militias would use Zello... um, at gun rallies and at political events. And so you could hear them talking about, you know, oh, I think I see somebody over there. Like, what do you see? Like, oh, yeah, it looks like Antifa might be here undercover, you know. And so they could have these extremely dynamic conversations in real time yeah, using this app. Yeah. And is that literally what it sounded like? I mean, was it a lot of like, cons- like, like what were they, what kind of things were they talking about when you first came across it that made you be like, wait, this is a militia? I, tracked this stuff really intensely in 2020, like from January 2020 up through January 2021 was when it was really at its height. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of what I was hearing was was defined by the politics of that moment. You know, this was 
uh, the summer of George Floyd. This was, um, you know, the concept of Antifa had become a full-fledged boogeyman on the right. And so what I was hearing was really conspiracy theories about these two left-wing groups, Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And I would say a a distortion of the groups and a complete overselling of what threat they posed to America and to the communities that these militias were based in. So you'd hear stuff like, I'd hear conspiracy theories about, oh, Antifa's being bussed in to our suburbs, you know, um, which is just an insane, you know, we heard this all the time in 2019 and 2020. um, And we need to be the ones to protect our community. You know, um, I remember hearing a, um, a long conversation about a, a gun store that wanted the help of a militia and they wanted them to stand outside with with long guns and on the roof. And they were getting paperwork from the gun store. I remember hearing a conversation where somebody claimed they had an inside source within uh, a Georgia police department and the, the police department had requested their help to keep the peace at a uh, at a protest related to a Confederate statue, you know, and the militia needed to show up and they needed to play the role of making sure no violence broke out. And I I would say this is one of the fundamental issues with this kind of vigilantism is they Mm. were always describing themselves as the protectors or the defenders, and yet they were the ones showing up with with weapons. Yes. Did you, at least at the beginning, did it, were you immediately like, oh, this sounds dangerous and important? Or was it like, these people are weird and kind of out there and this is interesting? Like, wh- what level of threat did it feel like to you in those months of 2020 when you were going down this rabbit hole? I'm, it took me a little while to get to a place of where I was kind of stuck in emergency mode, where I thought just violence would break out at any moment. Oh, wow. Um, and... Because it just seemed so extreme. Mm. Um, I remember this man describing a voicemail he'd left for his family, saying goodbye. You know, I'm going into the fray tonight. It looks like we are going into the fray tonight, so keep us in your prayers. Um, and keep me in your uh, prayers. If I should fall. Um, and if I, if today I die, at least I will have done it as like a patriot. I want to be remembered as a patriot. Let history show that I stood up against this tyranny. And what he was describing was a standoff with Antifa that never happened, you know? And it's just like there was such a passion around a political enemy that was in reality not what he thought it was. It really seemed like, based on the way that they spoke, that there was going to be more political violence than we got that year. So you were you were you were red alert right away. I was red alert right away, and what part of what I said to my editor um, when I was working on the story is I said like something is going to happen, yeah. and I hope to capture what happened behind the scenes. At what point did you hear what would become planning for January sixth? So. I should say that I um, collaborated on a lot of this reporting with um, a researcher and journalist named Hampton Stahl, who writes a blog called Militia Watch and is really, you know, one of the country's foremost experts on this. And he he was in all kinds of chat rooms and, and things that I wasn't paying attention to. And he started to say, he told me, you know, January 6th is really looking like a day where something might happen. And I was reading other far-right researchers who were saying, like, 
this is like this is it. This is the yeah. real deal. We're seeing a mixing of outright white supremacy groups, militias, which I consider to be something slightly different, um, and then kind of just like regular MAGA types, you know. And a lot of the people who were arrested were kind of just garden variety Trump yeah. supporters. They did not have affiliations with these organized movements uh, or, or violent organized movements. Um, and so that was really like there was evidence of this intermingling uh, online in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th. And it was really other people writing about it and saying, like, mm -hmm. something is going to happen. Something's ha there's organizing, like, pay attention, pay attention. And that's so it was it was probably like a few days before January 6th that it really struck me that yeah. this was worth paying attention to. Coming up, we'll talk about what Micah heard when he paid attention to Zello chatter on January 6th and what the FBI heard when it listened to Micah's reporting. Stay with us. Oh, y'all, we're one block away from the Capitol now. I'm probably going to go silent when I get there because I'm going to be a little busy. My name is Rahima and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with On the Media reporter Micah Lowinger. On January 6, 2021, Micah captured live audio from a member of the Oath Keepers as she stormed the Capitol building. His recording of Jessica Watkins has become a significant part of the story of that day. Among other things, the federal government used Micah's reporting as part of its prosecution. Watkins was sentenced to eight and a half years in prison on May 26th. In a recent episode of On the Media, Micah describes the experience of being dragged into the government's case and the many concerns it raised for him. Concerns about compromising his own role as a journalist and about compromising the basic social contract that makes our work possible. I wanted to talk to him about the experience, but first, I asked him how he stumbled upon the conversations Jessica Watkins was having on Zello in the first place. 
So I had basically very, very easily monitored monitored all kinds of right-wing militias, uh, Boogaloo Boys, Three Percenters, but I'd never been able to listen to the Oath Keepers because they were much more sophisticated. Right. Um, they had Zello channels. They were always password protected. This is a dues-paying organization. Um, they had a, a website chat room, I believe, again, that was also password protected. And it was kind of my ethical policy to never go undercover and never pretend to be somebody I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So it made it really hard joining some groups where they'd say, who are you? And then when I didn't respond, they banned me. Right. So I never got close to the Oath Keepers. And Which it is was to say, really... because the Oath Keepers is, has been one of the most sophisticated, organized, developed of these groups. Is, is That's is correct. Part of the That's correct. Yes, yeah. they... Again, dues-paying organization, they're bringing in money, chapters in, you know, most of the 50 states, and a really, like, kind of top-down hierarchy that was unusual for militias, you know? A lot of these were more, like, unaffiliated cells, you know? The Three Percenters is one of the biggest militias, and anyone can start a Three Percenter militia. You don't need permission from a national organization. It's just an idea. And that was not true of the Oath Keepers. This was, you know a trademarked brand. <laughs> uh, so I was familiar with who they were, but I had I had only spoken with a handful of Oath Keepers, and I just wasn't... They were a little hot, you know? As a journalist, yeah. like I was kind of like, oh, everyone's paying attention to the Oath Keepers. I'll look for something else. Right. And so then when you found Jessica Watkins on this channel on January 6th, had they just made a mistake that day? Like, how'd you get in? So this was a public channel. Um, I think it was called Stop the Steel J6. It was run by a right-wing activist who I had spoken to countless times over the year and a half uh, leading up to January 6th. I knew that he hung out with militia members. And he later denied to me that he knew who Jessica Watkins was. Um, And so I really have no idea how she ended up in this, but I think that there was some period of People just sharing links, being like, we're going to January 6th and we need to be in communication, so let's just like randomly talk here. Or, you know, I think it was just a frenzy of communication. Um, And really what we hear in these recordings are her and some of her friends back home in Ohio, other Oath Keepers based in Ohio, talking to her. Um, So we're not hearing Jessica Watkins and like, say, Stuart Rhodes. There's no evidence that he was in this channel. Um, but Jessica some, is is a key player in the Oath Keepers on that day, so we're hearing directly from one of the key players. And what is she saying that became so important? So what we hear Jessica saying is things like, you know, I'll do my best to communicate now, but when, but when I get to the Capitol, I'm going to be a little busy. I'm going to be a little busy. She says, um, "We have a good group. We got about thirty, forty of us. We're sticking together." And- Sticking to the plan. You know, and what we hear is Jessica narrating her march to and then eventually into the Capitol. She says the police are doing nothing to stop us. Um, And then eventually she's inside the rotunda and she's she's shouting over the kind of cacophony of violence between the the rioters and the riot police. The main dome right now. We are rocking it. They're throwing grenades. They're freaking shooting people with paintballs. But we're in here. But we're in here. And then we hear one of her sort of uh, Ohio Oath Keeper friends who's not in D.C. say something like, get it, Jess. This is what we lived up for. Everything we trained for. But the tape that you recorded 
became of great interest to the federal government because in it, you could hear evidence of a pre-planned attack. That's right. right. She uses the term. She says there are 30 to 40 of us and we're sticking to the plan. Sticking to the plan. Um, And it's, you know, it's unusual that somebody's like, hey, everybody, I'm committing a crime. I thought it beforehand, and here's evidence that I'm doing it. You know? Here we are all together in a conspiracy yes, to yes. commit that crime. Yes. So that's how the government becomes interested in your tape. Um, fast forward, April 2021. Um, you're on 60 Minutes. On January 6th, Michael Lowinger found an open stop. Talking about this incredible reporting. And that's when I heard... A few days later, woman. you get a call from the assistant United States attorney and then the FBI... Why did you not want to talk to them? So I don't believe that it's the role of journalists to work with law enforcement. You know, there is a history of journalists um, acting as informants with the FBI, sort of trading secrets with the CIA. um, And that's how journalists end up getting used for political purposes. You know, you play buddy-buddy, with uh, people who you should be covering in an adversarial and critical manner so that you can get, you can be the first one to break some story that they give you. But you have to wonder, why am I being fed the information that I'm, that I'm getting? Um, and what am I supporting while I do this? And I was, you know, sort of vaguely familiar with this history, and I didn't want to be a part of that. And I also did not want to be perceived that way, in addition to not doing that kind of collaboration mm-hmm. with law enforcement. I do have sources um, in some of these far right groups and, you know, I don't I wouldn't want a source saying like, well, how do I know you're not just going to say this to the feds? And so Micah came up with a solution. He just put all of his raw tape from January 6th on the Internet, making it available to everybody who wanted it, cops included. He figured that way he wouldn't have to speak with the feds or voluntarily cooperate with their prosecution. I should also say there was a conspiracy theory. <laughs> you know, there are a number of far-right reporters who have, like, killed on the Charlie Kirk podcast and on, you know, Steve Bannon and on Fox News, um, on Tucker Carlson, making the case for January 6th being uh, an inside job, basically. Yeah. Um, and one of these reporters claimed that I had been tipped off by undercover FBI agents and told to listen in to this channel so that the Zello channel, according to this conspiracy theory, was a place where um, undercover FBI agents had uh, been riling up Trump supporters to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise and that I was there planted to, like, capture it all, you know? And at that moment, it seemed like it was just people throwing everything at the wall, trying to see what would stick, see what would get them an appearance on Fox News. And I was concerned that it would be, like, my picture on Tucker Carlson or something. (laughs) And I was like, I can't handle this. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Yeah. But there was also, it sounds like, a principled stand about, I just don't want my reporting to be... I don't want to facilitate law enforcement with my reporting. Yeah, Um, I just don't think that that's, you know, maybe this is, like, too idealistic, but I think, like, I thought that our job is just to just uncover the truth, and then law enforcement can go in, and they can do their own investigation, and that these could be kind of two parallel fact-finding missions that don't cross, you know? Your piece of the work was done. 
yes, my piece is done. Like, you know, you guys weren't paying attention to this Zello thing and I was. And now you're now you're using me as like as evidence in this this trial. I never signed up for that and I don't want to do it. But in the end, that didn't matter. The government subpoenaed Micah to testify about his tape and he complied. The legal questions at play are both complicated and fascinating, and I urge you to go check out the On The Media episode that gets into all the details. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for this segment in our own podcast feed. But the take-home is there's a history here that Micah finds important and that reveals the precariousness of the social contract that makes journalism possible. It involves a famous Black reporter from the New York Times, Earl Caldwell, who covered the Black Panthers. The FBI tried to force Earl Caldwell to cooperate with their harassment of the Panthers, and he fought it all the way up to the Supreme Court. He lost, but his argument introduced a new idea about freedom of the press, the idea of indirect restraint. So Earl's lawyer, Anthony Amsterdam, helped kind of fashion this indirect restraint argument. And I think it's really a brilliant way of thinking about the role of the press and what should be protected. The government can't tell journalists uh, that they can't write about something. And they also can't punish journalists for writing about something that they don't like. But this idea of indirect restraint is kind of this third thing that hadn't been really clearly defined, which is that other actions the government takes can ultimately affect what gets written about and get what gets reported on. By subpoenaing journalists, the government was helping send a message to future sources that when you think you're speaking in confidence with a reporter, that confidence relationship is vulnerable. It is not set in stone, and it could be undone later. So you should really think twice about leaking things to the press. And so this was the idea of indirect restraint. And that actually, this is not just about journalists, it's actually about the public. Indirect restraints are squeezing the the flow of information from journalists to the public. And I think it's, it's brilliant and it's true because really journalism is built on trust, trust between writers and sources and trust between news organizations and news consumers. And we need our viewers, our listeners, our readers, to believe that we are acting on behalf of of truth and fact-finding, and we are not government messengers, you know? We are not acting on behalf of the government, and we will not cave to bullying and, and the like. At the core of your concerns around what happened for you um, is, this, is this social contract, as you talked about, between... Yeah. Sources, reporters, news consumers, listeners, readers, um, built on trust. And what I find myself wrestling with um, is, has that social contract already fallen apart? <laughs> like You could you- argue. <laughs> I don't think completely. I mean, yes, we're at a time of all-time low trust in in news organizations among news consumers right like journalism has been deeply stigmatized and that story has been going on for years but certainly the trump years were the accelerant um yeah so but wouldn't you say kai that it's more important than ever to preserve the trust that's left right like yeah doesn't yeah. that mean that every little thing that threatens us is 
could be a death blow. I don't know. I mean, that's that's why I think it's important. I think part of it is for me, uh, the existential crisis of um, why it matters in the first place. Um, I will I will confess to you. I was just having a, a conversation with a colleague uh, about my waning faith in the idea that truth and facts coming out are relevant to (laughs) outcomes, which is, right? Like facts just don't seem to be such a big deal. But part of what happens is I look at your story and I'm like, here's a reporter who got facts and like there was accountability as a consequence of the facts he got. And he feels ambivalent about the relationship that led to that accountability. Um, help yeah, me, help I mean, me in this moment, Micah. Sure, sure, sure. So I'll respond to, to two points. One is like, we can't know what the effect of journalism is in the immediate term, right? There might, there might be political actors that try to spin something, you know, and certainly anything that was related to Donald Trump went through a washing machine of, of spinning and, and exaggeration and lying and whatever, right? It doesn't mean that, that the, the journalism shouldn't have been done in the first place. And so I feel a little wary of getting into this, like, you know, oh, well, you can lie about anything these days, so it's not even worth telling the truth in the first place. I don't know. I'm not really <laughs> sure where that takes us, Kai. Two, I'll say that, like, I had heard this term accountability used a lot. And that's something they like, you know, talk about in J school. And you're supposed to just kind of nod your head and say, Mm -hmm. yes, accountability. Mm -hmm. But what does it really mean? I mean, you know, I have suspicions about, I have frustrations with the criminal justice process as, as, you know, many of us do. Um, And I have questions about what our carceral system does and what it means and whether it lives up to its mission and whether it's like, and and all of these questions. And in my sort of idealism around this kind of work, it's that you dig up the thing and then the truth is out there. And then I thought, well, maybe if in this case, let's say I documented something that turned out to be a crime, right? Well, now they have a deeper sense of how this crime occurred and they can go out and they can do their thing the federal investigators, right? It was the fact that I had to cross my line. Right. You know, I had to enter into their world and then basically go by their rules that felt like a, a step too far. I mean, when I'm testifying against, effectively against somebody that I've written about, that for me was a step beyond journalism into something else. Into something else. Though, just so it's clear to everybody, your testimony was limited to confirming the authenticity of the recording. Yeah. But so where does the militia movement stand now? Have you kept listening in on them? So all of these networks that Hampton Stahl, my partner and I, uh, wrote about have kind of fallen apart. This criminal investigation has had a demonstrable chilling effect on this kind of organizing, you know. Over a thousand people have been arrested. This is one of the largest criminal investigations in the history of the country. So a lot of people in the militia movement probably know somebody who got a, you know, knock at the door. Um, And so I do think that that has contributed to sort of turning the volume down on this stuff. Um, Do you think there's been a contribution to turning down the access to reporters as well? Yes. It has become harder for me to do this, this kind of work. I would imagine that people are more careful about 
what kind of organizing and recruitment they do in public. And um, that's that's probably a good thing for the country, but it's made my job a little bit harder. Yeah. That said, you know, look at the Proud Boys, you know, arguably had a bigger role in January 6th than the Oath Keepers. And, you know, we still have, like, the Proud Boys have continued to be quite active in public despite January 6th. They're out there protesting um, drag shows and uh, riling up a lot of anti-LGBTQ hate. Um, And so at the same time that, say, maybe some militia organizing has kind of has gone a little bit underground, um, other groups that were very involved in January 6th are happy to just pivot onto the next thing and just, you know, and that's that's quite alarming in my opinion. Well, Micah, thank you for this work, and uh, thank you for standing up for the social contract. We've got what's left of it. (laughs) Thank you, Kai. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer this week. Reporting, editing, and producing by Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Talk to you next time. Hold up. 